You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 2008 Canadian sleeper cult classic, Pontypool. Kiss means kill. Sample. A sample is simple. Sample is simple. Simple is simple. <laughs> Mr. Massey is missing. Mr. Ma- Mr. Mrs. Ma- missing is Mr. Massey is missing. I have to find Mr. Massey. Oh God, she's going off the deep end, folks. This film has some very eerie scenes, and most of them are thanks to not only someone mimicking the sound of a kettle, but Grant Massey himself, the great Stephen McHattie. I could watch him all day. I could listen to him talk all day, and it. I don't know if Mr. Burgess wrote this book with Mr. McHattie in mind. That's too much alliteration. I might be spreading viruses here. Sorry about that, folks. But um, <laughs> Stephen McHattie as Grant Massey is the best voice, the best... Like, this was written for him. I've never seen something where someone fits so well that it's hard to believe that... If you told me Stephen McHattie was a morning drive guy or the Take No Prisoners nighttime coast-to-coast AM guy, I would believe you. I would believe you, too. Um, this film comes into us hot by my own mother, who had sent me a message a few days ago and suggested that at one point we tackle this film. I had vaguely heard of it. I'd never seen it. And I did a quick little search on it. And I just read the first two lines of the description, radio station, small town, Ontario. So that obviously piqued my interest as a, former radio person and current resident of Ontario. So I had a lot of, I need to see myself, you see, gang, in a lot of the films that we do. How does this relate to me, Wes Snipe? And this definitely seemed like a film that would be cool to do, but I didn't realize that we would be doing it so soon. Lids, you had wanted us to do something chilly to celebrate these cold, dead winter months. Yeah, I feel like I'm suffocating, Wes. It is ironic in a way that we're covering this film while talking into microphones. Is it safe? Should we be saying anything right now? You know, that that feeling after you watch this movie is hard to kind of shake because you've got this very Canadian Marshall McLuhan, the medium is a message kind of thing ingrained in us as former journalism and broadcast students and just Canadians by and large and always sort of looking analytically at the things that we're taking in, especially nowadays when people harp on social media the way that they do. And then this particular film has a very special place in my heart. Once I heard that you had not seen it, my mind exploded, much like the cover art for this film. It looks like an exploded head of uh, Grant Massey, played by Stephen McCaddy. So that was my take on your having had not seen this. 
it's funny in a way and an unrelated circumstance one situation seemingly unrelated to another can be living in this venn diagram world where your mother just mentions this movie and suggests it i'm looking for a winter horror movie for us to do for the show and worlds collide because it hadn't being apparent to you that this is a winter movie. This is definitely a winter movie. And people might look at it and say, well, it's a it's a February movie. It's a Valentine's Day movie. I um, mean, Chris have watched it for Valentine's Day. He's covered it on his show, former show, By and Torture Cast, for Valentine's Day. Here in Canada, folks, Valentine's Day is the pit of winter. It is the deepest, darkest crevice of winter. It's typically as cold as January, if not colder and more desolate because we've been going through this shit for three goddamn months by that point and it is wretched it is wretched days are getting longer but it's not noticeable because it is so fucking cold and this movie starts out with a monologue of grant mazzy our radio star that we'll get to know throughout the film but it starts out with a drive in the canadian cold winter at six in the morning which is a dark desolate horrible <laughs> soul-crushing time having an argument <laughs> with his agent. And the snow, although it isn't a total character within the movie, it is obvious that this is a cold, snowy Canadian winter. Every time they open the window or the door, you see nothing but a flurry of huge snowflakes blowing in. And everyone is already sort of sequestered. They're wondering if school buses are going to be canceled. Some real realities that we grapple with in the winter here in Canada. So it is the like the quintessential Canadian winter horror movie that isn't something like the thing. When I first started to settle into this film, gang, you gotta remember, I like to go in cold for movies when I don't know what they are. And it's not something that I actively do. I'm not the type of person that mutes words on their Twitter accounts. Uh, I'm not the type of person that stays off the internet because, you know, spoilers don't make me angry. But I also, like to watch films without prejudice and I like to sit down and ask myself what what am I getting from this film what is this filmmaker trying to tell me with this notion and yes sometimes as you guys know when you're doing these types of films sometimes the director's not saying anything sometimes they're trying to get a movie out the door make a couple bucks and move on to the next thing Nothing wrong with that. But this film had me very, very dialed in, almost from the get-go, because I was trying to figure out, what is this movie about? But then I had another question, and this comes from me understanding how the radio industry works. What time do you think old Mazzy gets up in the morning? Because if I know something about old radio guys... They love to tell you how early they get up in the morning. I bet you he gets up at 430 because he mm -hmm. needs time to get positive, man. Put on his game face and, you know, go in to work comfortably and awake and alert and ready to take on the world. Take no prisoners and tell it like it is. Right. So he needs to get <laughs> ready to go. And Northern Ontario being Northern Ontario, he could live a half hour drive away from the station. Right. So mm -hmm. he needs to get through the snow. So that adds another 15 minutes or more to your drive. So that or he lives next door to it, which doesn't seem to be the case. 
one thing uh, about other radio hosts that people might not know listening to the show is if your show starts at six o'clock in the morning, generally speaking, you know, 4 a.m. actually is a pretty good guess. The reason for that is, is you're doing, let's say you're doing four to five hours of live radio. You have an idea about what you're going to do, when you're going to do it. You have a set amount of breaks because even though this is a talk radio station, there's still weather and traffic and commercials and things that they need to do to keep people tuned in and to keep the the lights on. So theoretically, this man would be doing tons of research and planning. He would start after the show ended and then would start up again in the morning going over it again and again and again. So things sound off of the cuff when in reality they're fairly rehearsed. Uh, This guy doesn't do that. This guy really just seems to roll into the station and tell his producer to, can you do me a favor and just do like Google, like some 911 call stuff? Because something happened to me on the drive to work and I want to talk about it. Uh, Radio people wouldn't do that. They might tell you an anecdote like my kids did this or, or I saw a weirdo on the bus today. But they wouldn't derail their entire show for an off-the-chance encounter that he has, as weird as it is, in the wee hours. So immediately, I was sitting there saying, where's your research, man? Where's your research? You're supposed to be doing some research. He's Grant Mousy. He doesn't need to do research. He's Grant Mousy, man. He just he just <laughs> rolls in, wakes up, and turns on the mic. I'm sure there's radio personalities that can do that. And it harkens back mm-hmm. to the myth of Howard Stern or even the myth of uh, Joe Rogan, who seems to be able to just flip on a mic. People don't see those those research things going on. I no doubt expect that quite a bit of the research is done at, in the postmortem at the end of the show, that the producers are producing as the show is being aired. So they are there producing the show as it's live but any chance they get they're doing background research chase production stuff like that but it can be pretty off the cuff when it comes to breaking news that's for sure mm-hmm. and maybe that is right. the point of his he's almost a columnist more so than a morning drive guy so they just let him do his thing whatever that is and and riff on whatever has come into his mind I guess that's the mazziness we hear about. They hired him for his mazziness. They just need the <laughs> mazziness dialed back a little. They just they gotta get to the get to know you first. This is kind of a, a, an interesting portion of the script that I was having some trouble with very early on. I find all of these characters quite believable. Uh, for people who work in a radio station, the radio station is ungodly huge. If you guys have ever seen radio stations, they normally don't look like that anymore. They're actually all quite... The the producers and all these kind of people are usually sitting in a relatively small room. Most of the... uh, All that real estate would be used for um, general office work and stuff like that, but there are missing quite a few employees they've noticed in the morning. But... I, um, it seems as though Sydney, which is the, uh, ops manager, it looks like, is really wants him to be on the radio 
and tell stories. But the second he gets off the rails and starts going, he starts telling, he starts talking like a Howard Stern or a, any sort of shock jocker who's trying to rile people up, piss them off because pissing people off is how you get them to stay tuned in, as he will point out. Um, it seems to be at odds, and I was getting the vibes of like, was this like a big city shock jocker who got in big trouble and got fired because all the radio sponsors like turned their backs on him, and so now he's broadcasting out of small town Ontario? Um, it's like the beginning of a sitcom. At the beginning of the film, when Mazzy's driving into work, he's having a conversation with his agent, which you have to really re read between the lines where he's like, yeah, I'm working. Yeah, as you put it, I'm working. But you're not anymore. You're fired. Because <laughs> <laughs> the idea is that, yeah, he was fired from whatever his big name job, which they don't really get into. And it's that reading between the lines that works for character building as far as mazziness. And we get the mazziness, full effect. We get full effect. Grant Mazzy telling it like it is. And he makes those missteps that someone from a larger city can only make in a small town by pointing out the pot growing industry and how dangerous it is when everyone in town is going, growing pot and has known all these people all their lives. It's not like a great vague other presence out there. These are their neighbors in the small town. Not like a big city where you're conveniently removed from everybody and can have a shroud or bubble of anonymity or an echo chamber. It's not like that in a small town. So then he starts riffing on the drunk cops, which is particularly sad for Sydney because she has to pull him aside and be like, Grant, these cops are alcoholics and they're trying to keep their jobs. And one of them is my brother-in-law and like trying to rein him in, not only to rein him in, keep his job, keep people happy, have a good news news station, but because it's such a small town, so he's sort of between rock and a hard place, just as Grant Mazzy, where on one hand you'd want to be like, why did they fucking hire him? They would have hired him because they probably would have got him at a discount. And radio teaches you to go where the jobs are. So if he, let's say he was broadcasting out of Calgary, or he looks like he might have been broadcasting out of Calgary with the cowboy hat and all the rings and, and all that kind of stuff because he's got an alt look to him but not like a rock look to him. It's like cowboy alt guy. So, you know, he's just a cool, he's a cool dude, you know, and you could tell that he's a cool dude. And so I'm guessing Calgary, maybe, maybe Toronto if it was a really, really big market. And now they're getting him at a discount, but they would have to know that part of what people are tuning into is the personality. That's what you're buying. You're buying the name and personality. Look at this big radio legend, let's say, who's been in the industry for 30 years, 40 years. Now he's broadcasting out of our little town, out of Pontypool, uh, which sounds like a quaint little area. So yeah, I, it, it was, I kept thinking the character of Sydney. I was like, just fucking... Who cares? Like he's filling ad time. Like he's fill like he's filling the airs. Like just keep let him keep talking. But maybe that's not such a good thing. No, he sounds more like a nighttime guy at that. Now, going back to the morning drive of the morning drive guy, this is fun. If you've ever wondered what the morning drive guys listen to on their morning drive, nothing. There's no radio on in his car. 
But he comes to a stop to take a phone call because his phone is ringing off its hook after he's tossed it after talking to his agent. And a woman comes out of the dark, snowy nothing to smack on his window. So he's startled, goes to open the window while she's already backing away from his car back into the snowy nothing of the woods. And he says, who are you? And she repeats him while she's backing off into the nothing. So soon enough, you only hear this echo of this woman's voice, who's obviously in distress, mimicking what Grant Mazzy just said to her. And it unsettles him. And this is what feeds his opening monologue in the morning on the show about when do you call 911? So he wants to relay the story. And that's where he gets his technical assistant to do some research about 911 calls because he wants to make this a whole thing. The show gets quite quickly derailed with breaking news. There has been a hostage situation on the ice, Wes. It's an ice hut removal season, as you well know. <laughs> and police have been called to the area. <laughs> they have been called to the area to remove some people who are now probably illegally housing their fishing huts and they need to be off by a certain date. That's very important stuff. You don't want to see the saddest thing in the world, an ice fishing hut broken into the ice, sinking into the lake because you know for a fact someone's got to deal with that. They can't just let that sink to the bottom of the goddamn river. Uh, you see them around here sometimes uh, on the Ottawa River uh, in certain areas. You'll be like, oh, looks like someone didn't get their hut because it's half into the goddamn water. And you, you ask yourself, to the people who own that or are renting that, who pays for that? Because they can't, they can't let it sink, right? Like, do they let it sink? No, they can't. Environment Canada, the game wardens, they would all have a lot to say about that. And you can find big bucks for not removing your hut. Uh, another tactic, which didn't make the news, is to burn your hut down, which you can get a huge fine for as well. Um, so, yeah. I'm sure this is the sort of stuff that small town radio stations do cover somewhat tongue in cheek, but it is, as our producer Sydney points out, the things that people need to know. Mm -hmm. Are the school buses running today? What is the temperature? What is the traffic like? They need to know these things. That is the function of radio in the minds and eyes of the listeners and the ears mm -hmm. of the listeners. Grant Massey thinks this is fucking hilarious because I'm sure he's never reported on drunk cops going to kick drunks off the ice or whatever it is and of course she needs to interrupt grant before he sticks both feet in his mouth unintentionally and people start to hate him off air by cutting to ken in the sunshine weather chopper <laughs> good old ken in the chopper um i just wanted to say to your point uh, we had a term in this industry called radio it was um Broadcasting to the caribou, that was kind of a, a, a dismissive attitude that you had because generally speaking, if someone got a job that was in radio but not in a very prestigious uh, uh, market, uh, radio is composed of markets and if you have a big market, it means that there's a lot of radio stations and big populations and if you don't have a big market and you're kind of out in the middle of nowhere, 
you're broadcasting to the caribou and a lot of first time radio uh, personalities, that's where they get their start. And it, it's kind of the dredges. It's, it, it's, it's, it, it's a good place for opportunities. Like you, you can get on a, a, a good time slot, but you're still broadcasting to 10 fucking people. So who cares? So I think like he sees himself a certain way, but at the same time, yeah, all this rural news, who gives a shit? Ice huts and like Keystone cops, like trying to get him out of the goddamn river. Like he's probably used to covering murders and, and huge, big breaking stories and important people making important decisions. And these are unimportant people milling about. Um, but you are right. Time, temperature, traffic. That is why people, that is the power of radio. The true power of radio is that you can passively listen to your car and it will tell you if your kids got to go to school today or if it's hot out or if there's traffic up ahead of you, that's what people really care about. The The commentary is icing on the cake. But um, Ken is your eye in the sky, Lydia. He is... Uh, Pawneepool, you might not believe this, Lids, has access to its own weather chopper, just like the big city. What radio station doesn't have an eye in the sky, man in the chopper watching the traffic and giving us the weather report. Oh yeah, Lydia, uh, we're backed up uh, down the highway uh, a couple of kilometers. Uh, you know, folks are going to want to take uh, the, 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 their detours as they say fit. <laughs> so stupid. He has no idea. He has no idea that, uh, gang, what's happening here is Ken, they're uh, in their sunshine chopper, is a dude in a truck sitting on a hill with as far as the eye can see, giving out traffic reports, uh, and he fakes all of the special effects of his helicopter. Yeah, which is hilarious. Uh, in that Grant sort of pokes fun at him a few times, and Sydney, producer, says to leave, just leave Ken alone. Just leave Ken alone. Get on to the next story. Let him do his bit, and just leave him alone. Don't fucking bug him, because he's like. He wouldn't want to be up there in this weather. Wouldn't want to be up there in this wind. It's got to be low visibility in the snow. Why are you up in the chopper? Maybe you should land somewhere safe. And Sydney knows, like everyone, it seems in the whole town knows, that Ken is sitting atop a hill in his Dodge Dart and playing sound effects. But it takes a couple of Ken calls. So we as the audience don't know this either. We mm -hmm. think, we start to sort of think that either Sydney's being overly protective for no fucking reason, or she's really at her wit's end and just doesn't want him to comment on the town they live in at all. And what sort of morning show host would he be if he did not comment on Pontypool? And he's also getting to know the place, so he needs to learn who does what in this town. And in his mind, and in our mind as the viewer, Ken is the eye in the sky in the weather chopper right? No. Yeah. And when Sydney tells him, we are as shocked as him. The look on Grant Massey's face of like, what do you mean Ken isn't in the chopper? And then she goes on to explain how pleased people are to know he's up there flying around, reporting on the weather, <laughs> reporting on traffic. It is so sad. Also, so very Canadian for us to be so very pleased with our little tiny Juno Awards. You know, look at that. Ask anyone else in the entire fucking world if they've tuned into the Juno Awards or if they know this Juno Award winning artist. They don't know what the fuck we're talking about because we're just so proud to see Ken up there in the sky 
flying around in his chopper. What about the Canadian Walk of Fame? Where is it? We have one. Is it in Toronto? Everything's in Toronto. It's probably near the Shania Twain Museum. Oh, yeah. The Twain Station. (laughs) Oh, fuck. You know, uh, Ottawa's got a pretty cool thing. It's called the Lady Dive. It's It's a car, bus, and a boat. So you can go in the Ottawa River there, and it could drive up onto the street, and it can go right back down into the water. Ain't that neat? Pretty neat, eh, there, gang? I like that they call it the Lady Die because people actually did pass away on the Lady (laughs) Die, and they never changed the name. (laughs) Never trust a bus boat. Um, Canada, um, I love this country so much, and and it, it suits me just fine. Uh, my grandparents had uh, had a sign over their cottage that just said "Suits us," and it had like this this guy with his hands in his pockets, looking like kind of a yokel. And I'm like, "Yeah, suits us." That's what this place reminds me of, especially Ontario. But you have a unique perspective of all of this coming from Calendar. Is this what the radio station is like in old? Did you have an eye in the sky in Calendar, North Bay? I do know that there was no chopper that was owned by any of the radio stations and i'm trying to think if they ever did this shtick where you would believe that somebody is up there in a chopper and i i i wholeheartedly want to contact uh, a friend of mine tim thompson an old acquaintance who was in radio for many 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 years who may have actually been he did the cruiser they had a van that went around town to various events but did they ever go so far as to position it as an aircraft of any sort? Uh, that would be hilarious. But yeah, people the way that people report on things and when people actually know the people that they're talking about, it's a very interesting dissonance where they're talking about people that are in the town on the radio, but other people know that they're a cokehead or that that cop beat his wife or that that business is a front or like people just know this stuff. So you wonder in a way, are the radio commentators Grant Mazzies of the world who are plugged into these little towns and don't know who the fuck they're talking about when they can just be so normal or blasé about the actions of people where other people are like, oh my God, finally that guy was arrested for that. Or why is he still on the force? Or how is that place not closed? Like, they all know where the grow-ops in town are, who was arrested with firearms, who beats their wife, who, you know, they know those sorts of things. So it's just, like, very strange dissonance in when I was a younger kid. Now, of course, radio stations are all Bob FM, and they may not even be in the town when they're broadcasting most of the time. But generally, you've gone to school with these people, too because they're not trucking in talent it's not old guard talent these aren't guys that learned on military radio in the royal canadian air force or whatever where they had originally been trained a lot of these old guard radio guys in the war they are fresh wet behind the ears students for the most part somewhere between 20 and 40 years old maybe and they grew up in the town so you know they know (laughs) <laughs> they, you know, they know what they're talking about. It's, it's so weird. And it's such a good reflection, I think, of a much darker little community and a smaller little community than I'd ever grown up in. It almost seems like too small of a community to have a radio station. 
although there were more TV and radio stations when I was younger in smaller communities. They weren't all like CBC affiliates. They've even closed some CBC offices up north, but there were more of these smaller stations. So it fits for something far before 2008. But it's just so neat to see that somebody being plugged into this small, tight-knit community where everybody knows everybody, but they all put on their happy face and run the fucking radio show like it's a kid's cartoon and make everything just hunky-dory. But then you, you bring in a shock jock who blows all of that out of the water in his first few sentences. I would have liked to have seen his interview for this position. I think that would have been great. It helps us suspend disbelief for what's about to come because we already look at Grant Massey, we look at Sydney and the rest of the radio station, and we don't see these things fitting together in real life, but here they are working together quite harmoniously and very entertaining to us. So I think that that helps going on to the, the bigger problem because this is a virus movie. When I was first told about Pontypool, uh, it was not only because it was in a cool Ontario film that was a sleeper hit to a certain extent, it was a zombie film where you see no zombies, was how it was originally pitched to me. That seems fairly accurate, more so, you know, it reminded me a lot of um, Signs. It's an alien invasion movie where you don't see the alien invasion, you're focused on this um, uh, rural farmhouse and this family sort of dealing with it. But, I mean, you do see an alien in that movie. And also that film has other locations as sort of like a bigger uh, blockbuster type film would want to do. This film has one location, two if you count Grant Massey's car. It's really centered on this radio station and almost in the same vein as when you're watching Night of the Living Dead and then is explaining his encounter with the undead and he talks about a diner and he talks about this truck and this explosion and there was hundreds of them and all that kind of stuff and you're really just what you are watching you're you're visualizing it but what you are watching is one man in a scene with one other woman telling you about something that would be very complicated and expensive to shoot as opposed to showing you something that is very expensive and complicated to shoot. This is the same idea. And I could very much, uh, you had said that this was, um, there was a radio play version of this story. Cause this is based off of a, a book, which I didn't know. I didn't know anything about this movie at all. And so it makes total sense to work in that capacity because you could even pare down some of the scenes a little bit more because really what you have is three main actors acting in a small space, reacting to each other and reacting to news coming in over the wire and also from eyewitnesses like their good buddy Ken, who is going to provide us the most haunting examples about what is happening very erratic and um hard to uh parse exactly what had gone on yeah in a war of the world sort of way 
it was produced as a radio play. It was actually produced as a radio play simultaneous to shooting this film, which is handy because then they only had to do one take stuff. I guess some of those mics are hot in there or whatever. So they just record what they're saying. And the radio play is available on YouTube at this time. So you can check it out. And I think that it gives as much punch to this and maybe a whole other sense of this warped reality when you're listening to it as a radio play as you would be hearing it as a listener on the radio i guess it is the version of sort of like the diane tapes to go along with twin peaks if you ever want to listen to all of the diane dialogue from agent dale cooper you can have that other window into the story even having watched this movie so many times i still want to read the book which i haven't i'm a bigger fan of tony burgess the author's uh, people live still in Cashtown corners which is in pre-production to be a film as well. So I hope it hits as hard as Pontypool did. But it does have that sort of War of the Worlds or one act or one set play kind of feel because it is this claustrophobic, cloistered feeling. Like they might as well not leave the sound booth in a way because there are so few people that they need to really have this, have in this story to make it work having the other voices come in like the bbc gets in touch with them ken our eye in the sky the police do call in to give a statement like a typical radio station would at one point to sort of lighten the mood they have their scheduled entertainment for the day which is players from a, a production of lawrence of arabia to come in of which one is tony burgess in this cameo scene, one of those oh, people I didn't come in to sing. Mm-hmm. It's adorable. Other than them and though a doctor that shows up later on, they could have even done with the doctor being another voice on the radio and forgone the Lawrence of Arabia crew as light entertainment for a moment of levity or whatever that that scene serves, uh, aside from another body on the floor later on. But it does it could take place with just three people and it works so well as a radio play and it would be it could have been taken straight from the book probably if it was envisioned as a war of the world sort of thing right that was one of the main influences from what i understand and it works you know it's did you find it boring at any points like i know that the very beginning opening monologue could for some people if you're not into grant mazzy's voice if you're not into the wordplay of ponty pool pont of flack flack is pool so it's ponty pool the bridge over the pool and ponty pool like that wordplay thing that he does at the beginning where you're watching nothing but a waveform there's no people on screen there's a lot of scenes that you're so close up on grant mazzy's face you can't see anything else there's so many scenes of just grant mazzy's face and a microphone. You get the layout of this basically one room huge studio in the basement of a church and that's where we spend so much of this film. Did you find it visually interesting though? I found it visually interesting honestly from the perspective of I can't believe how big this radio station is. I kept thinking to myself that over and over and over again because I've been in radio stations that broadcast to literally millions of people, and it's my apartment is bigger than than that area. But that's the beauty of radio. It's not 
the most expensive thing in radio is the tower. And once you got the tower, everything else is not as expensive. Did I find it boring? No, I didn't find it boring. I think as a, as a, as a novice to this story coming into it, I think I was getting frustrated, slightly, mildly frustrated at the very beginning of the film when Sydney kept interrupting Mazzy. Like, I didn't understand... Because in my I I understand as you were explaining it, I thought to myself, oh, you know what? That makes a lot of sense that she's trying to protect the integrity of the town and, and have them not go too far off the rails. And there's a fine line between commiserating and making fun of, of people. And I think she was trying to balance that. But I, I, I really was getting and and not only that but people she her especially it seemed like her job was to interrupt people's dialogue S- stop talking about this talk about this uh cut him off okay he's not saying anything i was like you're cutting off the police officer making a statement on the radio station about this big story just because He's essentially saying that he they don't have any information right now. That's not how radio works. That's not your job as the ops manager to to cut off a statement from a police officer. So I was I was I was finding myself at odds with that, and and I kept forgetting that I'm watching a movie, and the job's movie is to, to not follow radio procedures. the The job of the movie is to be a movie. So, um, I I put that to bed. But once it um. And also because I didn't know what was going on. Like, I genuinely, I did not know this was a virus movie. I did not know that this could be interpreted as zombies. And (laughs) the explanation about where this virus comes from is one of the most buckwild plot points I've ever seen in anything. To the point in which how anybody could jump to this conclusion this monumental leap to this conclusion and then they're figuring it out but it's all based off of nothing they're just thinking that it might be this i'm like what why would you think this where would this logic leap come from where this is the reasoning for everything but i'm getting ahead of myself i did not find it boring is the short answer to that question okay good no that's good because when you say this movie could work as a radio play. It's only got X amount of people. It all takes place in one fucking room. It has to be something really special. And I suppose that it truly mm-hmm. is. It is a cult classic already. It is a cult hit. Mm-hmm. It is a huge influence on the way that people see other ways to write a virus infection movie that isn't contagion or pandemic or 28 days later even. Uh, it is. It has changed the allowable perspectives as far as entertainment storytelling when you're dealing with like a pandemic or a virus and i think if anyone's been shirking pandemic and virus stories which i have not i've been gobbling them up i love watching them in over the last two years even when this was all fresh and very very scary not that it isn't still very scary um in this pandemic i love pandemic literature and films if you don't. <laughs> I think that this is still, because it is so far off of any sort of medical contagion, and it is so sci-fi, really, when it comes to it, it is very dark, weird, 
as far as what this virus is. I don't think that it will infringe on your fears or sensibilities at this time dealing with an actual pandemic that has spread around the world. So this contained pandemic starts to be realized while they're on the radio. They've spoken to the police, there's something going on. And then Ken has his bird's eye view, of course, flying around up there in the sunshine chopper. He sees people, hundreds of people, gathered around the offices of Dr. Mendez. And all of a sudden the wall gives way and people are just spilling out of this and they're eating each other. They're biting each other. There's people, there's so many people dead. Like it escalates that quickly while Ken is telling this story from something's going on. There's a riot or a mob. People are chanting. I don't know what they're saying to, oh my God, they're killing one another within minutes. Of course, the producer is doing what she's been doing all along, wanting to interrupt him, get him off the air, go to school closures, cut to pre-tape, do whatever you can to get this insanity off the air. But Grant, probably having come from a larger city, like you said, where he's covered murders and suicides and SWAT teams and action, wants to stay with this because he's their eye in the sky. He makes, he makes the very good point that this is what people are going to be tuning into. You expect me to go to leave this story and then we're going to have a musical rendition of Lawrence of Arabia and we're just not going to talk about this big story. One of the things that live radio has the advantage of, and this is how radio became as popular as it did, is it was able to um, react instantaneously to news as it was unfolding because at the end of the day you just need to hand a piece of paper to someone with a microphone and they can tell you late breaking news nowadays people uh, check twitter and they check uh you know their social media to see what people are cropping up but there's still a huge uh, proponent of the population uh oh, sorry proponent there's a huge portion of the population that still relies on terrestrial radio to get this news out to them particularly vulnerable people like older people and people who would uh, when you start reading hearing about the obituaries of people who have died i mean there's a lot of people like over 50 and some even to their 90s so you know you could tell that these are the types of people that would have benefited a lot from these radio programs and still it's still re reaching millions of people so you know, it, it's very fascinating to uh, it, it, but it almost because they're so adherent to the structure of this radio program, um, they're cutting to tapes. They're cutting. They're trying to do everything they can to like, well, we'll get back to that later. But we have scheduled programming that we need to get done, which is ludicrous, right? You know, it's like when when um, when nine eleven happened. You know, they they like CNN didn't say like, well, you know, we, we, we got to go do our regular programs on top of doing the news. They just put everything aside and like Wolf Blitzer didn't leave the air for days. But uh, th there's there's that aspect. But uh, again, like Sydney is in such denial about this thing. Like it almost seems like everything's fine. This is fine because the, there's a relative distance to everything because they are holed up. There's no windows. There's no... Um, there's no uh, contact with the outside world aside from Ken and a couple of news people who are trying to get to the bottom of it. I know that uh, the BBC had come in there. They had also um, 
encounter this bizarre high-frequency signal that seems to be garbledygook, and they don't explain how their producer um, cracked this. It, it, she's always just at a computer, and she's like, okay, I got it. And I'm like, did you run that through Adobe and slow it down? Or what did you do? Like, like they never they never bother explaining how she's doing all this. It's very Star Trek-y, where it's just someone sitting in front of a panel, like, beep, 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 tacky on waves, and then there's a solution. Um, so uh, they they get this weird hidden message. Uh, and I don't remember everything. I know you've seen this movie more than me, but it said to not use terms of endearment and to not really talk at all and certainly don't broadcast this out and don't translate this message it is it sounds more garbled because it's coming through the loudspeaker outside when we hear it i believe in this portion um so it's not quite as as bad surely coming through the telephone or the headphones or even into the sound booth so she must have been able to understand it and she is their homecoming hero. This is Laurel Ann Drummond, the uh, technical producer of the show mm -hmm. and research assistant or jack of all trades. She was mm -hmm. uh, just fresh off a tour in Afghanistan. So maybe she had done, as part of her military service, some sort of intelligence, right? So maybe this is mm -hmm. totally her jam. So yeah, she translates this message as Grant reads it on the air to not use terms of endearment, avoid rhetorical discourse, and just some very weird directives that were broadcast in French initially. So it's just odd. And this is where Grant Massey has already had a bit of a breakdown between his producer, ops manager, telling him the way he ought not be, and him countering with, you know what, I get it. I'm not stupid. I... I'm going to just do my job. I get it. You don't have to harp on me. You don't have to interrupt me all the time. I just hate winter. And he was onto this like dark night of the soul speech about what place he's in. Um, you can tell that this sort of excitement is what he needs right now to claw him out of that seasonal affective disorder hole that he's been tipping into for the past little while. So he wants to stick with the story. And like any good newsman, any good journalist, any good radio man, he wants to bring the story to the people as it's happening. Be the boots on the mm -hmm. ground, so to speak. Now, no matter how much denial his producer can be in, nothing can get a producer to cover a story like your fucking switchboard lighting up. The phone starts ringing off the hook with the BBC <laughs> trying to get what's going on. The police call and tell them that they are under quarantine and they can't leave the building. No one is to leave the building. They have more calls from Ken with more insanity that he's witnessing. At this point, Ken is trying to find a safe place to get away from these people because they keep chanting things about U-boats and Hitler and repeating things. And they keep the, the herd of people that is now carousing through town, killing one another, are seem to be hunting and, and moving and they have chased people. So he's witnessed all sorts of people trying to get away from them. And then the crowd starts chanting and repeating whatever the people are saying. Like it's very, very creepy. So while we're trying to figure out what's going on, so are the BBC and they just hook him in. Now you were on the radio just last <laughs> night. 
last I night. was, yeah. How fun is it when people just throw to you? And this has got to be part of your training as a broadcast journalist, where it's just like, so what do you think about that, Wes? Uh, well, Lydia, what I think about it is it's very early to tell. I, I, you know, uh, we have to uh, get more information and certainly uh, contacting our highest uh, points of authority is the, the way that we're going to be doing that. Right now, what I can tell the people listening to this show is to stay calm, to stay indoors and to uh, lock your doors. That's how I do it. You just like you, when you have yeah. nothing to say, you just... Tell people to stay calm and tell them to stay indoors and and you tell people that we need to get more information and you kind of pass the buck off to um, government people and what and whatnot. Um, this uh, BBC broadcaster is it Nigel is his name? I'm not sure. Nigel something, and I don't even know if this is an actual real BBC person. <laughs> I don't know. It's the most British name I could possibly think of. It's like. He gives a very interesting tidbit of information that um, made me think a lot about Rabid, only because so much of Rabid takes place in Quebec. And it kind of made me think, like, maybe this takes place in the same universe as Quebec. And so they're like, oh, no, we don't <laughs> fucking lock up our borders. We're not getting fucked by a virus again. Um, but... They have said that Ontario is being cordoned off and they're not letting people into Quebec. And uh, listeners, if you're not in Canada or not in Ontario, uh, that is the situation that's going on right now. Quebec is uh, shut down with curfews and you're not really allowed into it. And um, so that's, that's very, very uh, interesting how life is paralleling that. But it, it makes you wonder okay what is it about why is this only is it foolish to think that you can't cross the border and spread the infection this film will tell you no this film will give us more information later that makes it seem like there's perfect sense but we keep seeing french as a component of this film coming in and it makes you think what what is it that the quebec uh, the Quebecois know that we don't know. So uh, that was like the mystery of this film as I was watching it was very, very compelling because I genuinely had no fucking, I thought like honestly that this movie was going to be like Lords of Salem or something like that. Like, like watching a host go insane and you know, you have like cultists and witches or something like I thought it was going to be something like that. I had literally no idea that it's a virus movie, like none whatsoever. And it would have that same complaint as The Shining does, where Jack Torrance starts out as someone who's unhinged and scary and could snap at any minute because it's okay. He saw it on the television. And those sorts of deliveries <laughs> we're getting from Stephen McCaddy, right? So we're getting mm -hmm. someone who's angry, unhinged, in a dark place has you know real misgivings about this town and this job and like all those things if he were to have gone off the rails and that's what it was that this was was like network or this was like lords of salem or something like that it would it would just have fallen like a house of cards because it would be like oh that's no fun we don't get to see the deterioration of this guy he comes to us riddled with holes but <laughs> instead yeah it's something very very different because it does 
set you up that you want to know what's going on. And Sydney throws out some lines like, oh, they're screwing with us. And even Mazzy's like, this is this is a ploy. You guys are just putting me on. You're trying to shake me up. And so even though the people we're getting our information from don't believe anything that's going on out there, we're also very worried because there are people dying. And the people calling in sound genuinely unsettled. The BBC has asked them if this is a, a language thing, like if it is the French language, if this is a terrorist situation, um, hearkening back to our past with our troubles, our own troubles with the FLQ and those sorts of things. Is there a bomb threat? The military is being called in, correct? Again, like you've said, they don't know what's going on. They're sequestered. They have no eyes on this situation, save Ken. So Ken calls back. <laughs> He's hidden in a silo, not the little silo, the big silo, you know, just off. <laughs> you know, the one <laughs> Bond Road, you know, the one. And he's safe in there. They can't see him. He's watching them. They're killing still. He's reporting on all this death and destruction. Sydney doesn't want to hear this sort of stuff like talking about. And he's naming names about who he's seeing getting killed out there. And she's cringing with every single one. Eventually, uh, one of the townsfolk's sons gets into the silo with him and he's babbling like a baby it's like there's a baby trapped in his breath Cindy doesn't want to air this anymore because she doesn't want to hear someone die on the air and there's mm -hmm. a real hard line when it comes to that sort of stuff tv radio internet to a lesser extent they don't want to see that sort of stuff if you have any sort of production control you you don't want to air death you don't want to air bud dwyer you don't want to air the suicide leaps off of the 911 towers you don't want to you don't want to air that so she has a real moral hard line she does not want to cross but mazzy's sticking with it oh yeah mazzy's what is your opinion there. on yeah like would what is your opinion on should he have hung up on ken or is it human fear that is keeping him on the line his need to know what is going on and what is a threat. That's kind of a big question. Careful how I say this. There is a fine line between showing um, 9-11 victims plunging to their death and like Bud Dwyer blowing his brains out or do we need to show a photo of Momar Gaddafi with like a fucking bayonet up his ass stripped almost naked dead on the street like sometimes yes sometimes no and i could think of several examples that are not the place for this podcast for me to say this was the right call and then there's other places uh, that are also not for this podcast to say this was the wrong call i think that in this case i would be in the camp of we need we we have no information and this is the the closest thing to information that we get that perhaps we could learn something that could save a lot of other people's lives so while this is uncomfortable and this is unfortunate i would say stay on the air if nothing else to tell people how serious the situation is or patch it in to laura land their technical producer, man about town. She is the dude that 
should listen to this. Like, she needs to get it on tape. Sure, she's collecting tape throughout this show. She's got his morning monologue on tape. She's collecting pre-tape like you do. Uh, this could be something that they could just patch over to her to keep Ken on the line like they do. And uh, For a storytelling perspective, for our perspective as horror movie viewers, it's compelling. It's good. Mm -hmm. This is the Gru and the ghoulish moments that, that we're here for. Um, but from a radio perspective, man, 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 they should have cut away. Even though Mazzy keeps telling him, no, Ken, don't go near him. Stay away from him. Mm -hmm. No, you shouldn't do that. No, we don't want to hear what he's saying. And it leads me to almost believe that perhaps this is another moment where we're spreading the virus. I have a theory mm -hmm. where this virus began in the morning with Grant's pre-tape about Honey the Cat is Missing in Ponty Pool. Ponta Flag. Ponty Pool. You know, that whole <laughs> word play that he's doing. Enter the doctor. Dr. Mendez crawls through a window <laughs> in the station. So suddenly, at this height of tension, well, Ken is on the phone, people are dying, he's got a dying person there with him. They don't really know what is going on, except that there are roving crowds of people killing everybody and chanting and repeating, they keep repeating nonsensical things. And everyone's out of their fucking minds and the doctor who was in one of the very earliest broadcasts that ken had noticed from his eye in the sky the sunshine chopper mm -hmm. he has crawled in the window so as a viewer of traditional horror movies infection movies virus movies zombie movies like upon my first watching i was convinced this guy is the reason this is all happened this is a viral thing. oh yeah oh, oh yeah. yeah i was he's like the he's like the fucking uh doctor and john carpenter's thing that they keep in the little uh shed and then she's like oh i feel a lot better now <laughs> to let me out <laughs> um it's it's that type of shit where you're like yeah because he comes in the thing that i find fascinating is he is the example of you're looking at a scientist trying to figure this out in real time so while i as someone who's enjoying a horror movie is watching this and saying you got all the answers what this character is presenting as is he's figuring out the answers on the fly and he crawled on his hands and knees to get to this radio station and he understands the early symptoms. Um, our war veteran, she has slipped into it. She has um, entered a fugue state, you could call it. Yeah, it began with a bit of aphasia, mixing up some words. Mr. Mazzy is missing. To which Sydney says, no, he's right there in the sound booth. And she's like, I gotta go. I don't know. I had it. I just don't know. Mr. Mazzy. I have to find Mr. Mazzy because Mr. Mazzy's missing. And she gets into this word loop that we're thinking, okay, is this maybe what they're talking about where people are talking nonsense and babbling? And you're kind of worried now because we're calling the French warning to not speak terms of endearment or get into rhetorical discussion. It's sort of like, okay, don't discuss this any further with her because this could get worse, right? Because this is what we're dealing with, right? This has got to be what we're dealing with. The kettle comes to a boil and Laurel Ann begins mimicking the sound of a boiling kettle, which is so unsettling. I love that scene. That's when the doctor is says, okay, don't talk to her. Let's just go. Don't say anything. She's going to follow our voices if we do. Let's just get somewhere safe. And the producer suggests the sound booth, which of course is fucking perfect. 
So they're trying to make their way there, and Laurel Ann begins what he calls rooting for voices. Yeah, it's a very fascinating um, sequence. Before this, just before we leave that uh, earlier scenes, I did want to draw attention to the obituaries that Mazzy is reading. This is a very chilling area of this film in which I was leaned forward very much um, into what was going on in front of me. It reminded me a little bit of the crazies. It was... uh, it was a very compelling scene in which he's essentially laundry listing and showing in black and white um, townspeople, people of Pontypool, and and explaining that this person uh, killed this person and this person died by the hands of this person. And he would say their age and names and it's all heartbreakingly young or heartbreakingly old. And you could imagine that these people killed their loved ones and then died um, in horrible uh, uh, fashions themselves. And as this is going on, um, that's when uh, the doctor does show up and they sit down to do an interview. This is another frustrating thing because now as the, the viewer, I'm like, okay, it's time for some answers. This guy showed up out of nowhere. He was at... Uh, ground zero apparently of whatever this started they threw out some dialogue earlier about him getting into trouble with like prescription shit okay and he doesn't he's observing things like in the moment he's describing what um is it laura is that her name laurel laurel Laurel, it's it's um Laurel's behavior, and he's likening it a lot to an animal, and he is reminding everyone to not talk to them or acknowledge them in any way, shape, or form. She keeps sort of banging into the glass. She can't hear them, but then they suspect that. So the doctor, uh, uh, the entire time, has implied that language has something to do with this. He is he is talking about. Don't make any sound. Don't make any. Um, don't speak to them. Uh, and again, we we've understanding this this. Uh, don't use terms of endearment and all that kind of stuff, which is funny because Sydney says "honey" and "sweetie" like eight hundred thousand times in this movie, and I'm just like, what is about this? Do you not get, lady? As they're listening or, or talking, trying to figure this out, they get to the conclusion that perhaps, just perhaps. Laurel can read their lips through the glass because you can't see. And Laurel is saying something out there. Something. She's mumbling. Her lips are moving. We can tell she's like trying to mimic them maybe or she's saying what the crowd is chanting which apparently according to Ken last we spoke with him was look out for U-boats of all things. Some of the crowd outside is still mimicking something when granted kind of when Grant had kind of come to his last nerve and tried to go outside and had yelled at Sydney and Sydney yelled at him and Laurel Ann had said, get back, here they come, and slammed the door before the whole station was overrun by these infected people. So some of the echoes we can hear when they do show us outside, we don't really see many of the people outside. They show us the loudspeaker that is broadcasting what they're saying on the radio. But we can hear the crowd outside and they're mimicking a mix of look out for you boats and some of the things that Sydney and Grant had said when they opened 
the door for that very brief moment. So it's unclear as to what Laurel Ann is saying outside of the sound booth because we don't really get many shots of her talking from here on in. But she does begin even more violently running up against the glass. And the doctor says that she has, she's basically now a repeating signal, looking for fresh voices. Victims, from what he can understand, need another victim to unload whatever it is that they've taken on that has traveled somehow through speech. And I always imagine that Tony Burgess was just sitting around one day and went, well, we can get viruses all sorts of ways, you know, through the air and through blood or whatever. But do vi can, can a virus go through the air in the form of sound waves? And then his imagination just caught fire <laughs> from there, right? So this is what the doctor surmises. In the most Marshall McLuhan, medium is the message way I've ever heard that a word can be infected, but you're only infected by it when it's understood. Now, this is where you found it's just buck wild to use a West term. It's <laughs> beyond sci-fi at this point. And it is. It truly is. Because it seems so simple, much like Marshall McLuhan's conundrum, the medium is the message. The reason why I find this, it's not like the idea, it's not like the idea is so far-fetched to me that I can't buy it. I will buy demons and ghosts and Bigfoot, and I will buy immortal serial killers and Wendigo and all kinds of things as, as long as the movie says this is so. If the movie tells me that this is so, then it's so. And you, I, I feel like you can't even enjoy this fucking genre if you're not at least willing to meet the film at its level. So at its level, if this film is telling me that words become your comprehension of certain words, carry with it a virus, those words are specific but unknown to us. So we never know if we're speaking the word that can get us sick or not. If that's what you want me to believe, okay, I believe you. That's what the movie's about. What I don't believe, what I have problem reconciling with is that this fucking guy came up with that conclusion all by himself because it's almost as if to say, like, imagine Lids, if everyone around us was getting sick by some mysterious virus. Just picture in your mind this hypothetical situation in which a, a, a global pandemic was happening and every one of us was dropping from a, a, a viral infection that originated far away and is now everywhere. You know. I'll try. How, I'll try. I'll try. Okay. But I'll, I'll, I'll meet you halfway and just sort of liken it to a flu or virus. Okay. Okay. So in this hypothetical world in which there's a global pandemic, imagine yeah. if, imagine if Fauci or some other fucking doctor just stood up in his chair and said, I've got it. Everyone who gets sick is getting sick because they saw the color pink. And everyone is just like, oh, yes, that's it. That's got to be it. What? Like That's what it sounds it, it, like. But it's plausible so, given their symptoms. <laughs> but my point being is... I wish that there was some kind, and I, I understand you got to keep the film moving and you don't want a fucking boardroom scene with a bunch of people in lab coats doing experiments for 45 minutes. We don't have the time and this is not the story. But 
because there isn't any other, it's just one guy who is not even really an expert who seems to know something but doesn't know things at the same time comes to this dramatic conclusion that is so far outside the logic of human understanding and thinking and it happens to be correct on top of that that is the buckwild conclusion it's it's almost like in cop shows or spy movies when a character i figured out that you did this and you went here and you talked to this person but they never fucking explain how they figured out they just somehow knew because the script said that they knew that type of stuff I bump into every single time. But again, it's probably just like the brick left outside that you can use as a weapon. Why is that brick there? Because it's the world and sometimes there are bricks there. That's the, so, you know, I'm not saying that this ruins the movie for me, but I definitely was sitting there with, while this insane concept was fed to me through a character and it was right because I didn't understand whatsoever how he drew that conclusion. Is it based off observation? It had to have been. But why would that be the observation? I think that this feeds into my theory of the origins of the original. There, there was a name in the book for this affliction, this sort of aphasia that people, this replicating of a word, where a word takes on a warped meaning. The meaning is infected and it copies itself over your understanding in your mind. Uh, I forget the name of this affliction, but this is the affliction we're dealing with. One of the directives from the garbled direction from the French at the beginning, near the beginning, was to avoid rhetorical discourse. My idea, and why the doctor would have such a great idea as to where this came from and why it does this, not fully understanding what I think I understand, because I'm so fucking smart, is at the beginning they had played some pre-tape of Grant Massey talking about Pontypool that the cat is missing. What was the cat's name again? Honey. That honey. Terms the cat of is endearment. Missing. Yeah, honey. The cat is missing, and he plays a word game with Pontypool. Grant Massey being Grant Massey, he could say anything to me, and I would believe it. So he is speaking to persuade. He is using repetition to the greatest degree with his sort of mind puzzle about how it's so odd to him that Honey the Cat is missing in Pontypool, Pont de Pool, Pont de Flac, the name of the woman. Like he's talking in this rhetorical device using a term of endearment. The people outside have been carrying around the Honey the Cat is missing posters that were on all of the telephone posts in this town. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of like, links to rhetoric, persuasion, hearing a human voice, words that sound the same, having meanings mixed up in your mind, and it all comes back to Honey the Cat. I think that, get this, Grant Mazzy had this little speech, they threw it on on his way in in the morning, <clears throat> so they'd have some pre-tape, and this sparked this. Why it was sort of ground zero in the doctor's office, 6 a.m., doctor's office, small town, waiting room. What are they typically listening to? Not each other fucking talk, because if you're anything like me, you hate it when people fucking talk to you at all in a doctor's office. They're listening to the local radio. They would always play local radio in the doctor's offices where I sat. This is before Sirius Satellite <laughs> FM or XM or <laughs> right. you know, Spotify, right? So you would have the local radio. So everyone that was in 
the doctor's office with no chance of talking to one another was listening to this being drilled into their head by the most hypnotic voice on the air, Grant Mazzy. I think that it started there. So the doctor himself got to see the infection begin, whether he knew where it would go or not, but he would, they would have started biting each other. They were bleeding and dying when they exploded out of the doctor's office. I really think that the doctor is the only person that really saw it travel from person to person. Okay. Okay. I'm with you on that one. Um, what is known for certain is that this idea of the word uh, and comprehension of a word um, is what is infecting people. And without someone to pass it on to, apparently you erupt in a geyser of blood. What do you think about the gore in this movie? It's entertaining. It's very entertaining. I'm not sure what Laurel's trying to do when she sustains her first injuries. She is on the other side of the sound booth. She has the whole, you know, kitchenette area, all the electronics and everything. She's, I think, like gnawing on the 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 wires in the fuse box to try and yeah. stop them, maybe, or something. Like, I'm not really sure. But she ends up with a huge laceration and a boiling burn on the side of her face. It looks absolutely grotesque. She's been bashing her head into the glass. So we get a close-up, of course, of this horrific damage she's already done to her face and blood spattering onto this glass in the sound booth not to mention of course the jumping and the grossed out looks on the faces of the producer grant mazzy and the doctor while she's doing this and then yeah she explodes in a geyser of blood where the doctor thinks that is impressive (laughs) (laughs) he's he's very interested in the scientific uh process here um People break in, and now their little sound booth is full of zombies. Well, not the sound booth, but outside the sound booth. I was hoping that perhaps Laurel Ann's blood would uh, obscure them so they couldn't see it, like the newspaper on the train to Passan, but it didn't work, and people know that they're in there. They start to broadcast this thing on repeat, which seems to dispel the infect and, and uh, infected. Uh, maybe you remember it better than I do. Laurel Ann is home or has or what is it sydney briar is alive sydney briar is alive sydney briar is alive they broadcast this because they figure the herd will pick it up they'll repeat it someone like the military cops someone who's not infected maybe it will give someone a moment of hope if not save them if they know the one real local celebrity here the operations manager of the fucking radio station the one voice you hear all day which is sydney briar oh well that makes all sense it seems to work and it clears out the station although i will point out that earlier in the film we saw that one of the lawrence of arabia kids um was getting infected by this uh word virus and (laughs) For some reason, they just left her in the waiting room and the rest of her family is gone or dead or something. I don't know. But it, it kind of like leads to the scene in which Sydney and uh, Mazzy, a uh, killer, <laughs> stomp on this kid. Yeah, it's pretty sad. And Sydney feeling like you ought to is pretty remorseful. She grabs a Sharpie and starts just writing on the wall to leave her like sort of last testament in a way, just like 
my name is Sydney Breyer. I just killed a little girl. I feel so horrible. I'm, I'm a good person. If you're reading this, just know how remorseful I am and how I apologize to the world and God and her family and her and like she feels fucking horrible. She also starts downing Mazzy's bottle of Glenfiddich because I guess Laurel Ann had brought Mazzy a bottle of scotch because that's how he gets through his day on the air. Half in the can, I suppose. But she's just grabbed this bottle and started drinking because she hasn't been able to get a hold of her kids on the phone for quite some time. They've had to let Ken go because he definitely became infected, mixing up the word simple and sample mm -hmm. to the point where all he could say is simple, sample, simple, sample. And it, that, those words had copied over every word he knew. And he was about to go and do what Laurel Lynn had been doing, which was look for someone else to infect with this under the threat of explosion, I suppose, or whatever it is that exactly happened to Laurel Ann. Just so, so very sad. So they're trapped alone. The doctor has gone and crawled back out the window for fear that he was infected. He kept saying breathe. And this is where they figure out um, they had communicated a little bit writing to each other, understanding that just speaking words was bad. It seemed that the doctor was falling into the trap of breathe. He The word breathe was, he was saying it over and over again. Although he did realize that when he was speaking German, it was not happening. It was making him feel better. It was helping him keep control. In the same way that Sydney starts speaking in French, they realize that this virus, whatever it is, is being carried on the English language uh, by itself. And the only way that they could save each other was through French. That's what I, th I thought to myself when I was watching the film. It's like, the credits are just like sponsored by the FLQ, Viva la Revolution. I'd be pretty fucked, even though I'm in French classes as we speak three times a week, two or three times a week. Mm -hmm. I uh, don't speak French, but I speak about as much as they do. So I mm -hmm. like that. We also had some subtitles to help us along, but the little bit of rudimentary French, comme des enfants, that they speak, we can, we could mm -hmm. probably get it. We could do. We could do that if we were stuck in this world where English is infected, Wes. We need to speak French. We could do what they've done. The one word that oddly Grant Mazzy knows, tuer, to kill, he uses it properly when they start sort of arguing like, I just killed that little girl. No, you killed that little girl. No, we killed the little girl. Sydney keeps saying kill and killay like she doesn't know the word for kill. And even though Mazzy just used it, she keeps using it. So even though they're speaking only French, they're rudimentary, childish French to get by at this moment. She keeps using the word kill. Well, wouldn't you know it, the word kill gets infected and she starts saying kill in place of most of the words that she's about to say. She reverts to English and begins saying kill over and over and over again. But don't you worry, don't you fret, because there's going to be another insane logic leap in which Mazzy figures out how to do this and i just i just always get the sense that i think man i would be stumped i am not good at puzzles i'm not good at riddles i am not good at this type of abstract thinking i like literal thinking i like information i like facts i don't i'm not good at drawing conclusions like this so maybe that's why i have a hard time accepting that a character can just come to this conclusion but 
he says that have you ever just repeated a word ad nauseum until the word ceases to have meaning what if you change the meaning of the word and so he does that he then drills into her brain what you need to start thinking is your comprehension of the word kill cannot mean what kill means you have to change its meaning in your mind okay um i don't know if it's only like a silly little it's like a kid's game right it's like kids play it's like today every time we say kill we actually mean kiss children don't mean that outside of the area of play so does it work if because there are actual disorders like you had alluded to like where i hold up a picture of a pen and your brain says apple um and and so like there's a disconnect about what words mean what we've accepted certain words to mean so does it only mean that you need to just pretend that that's what the that the word is supposed to mean or are you somehow rewriting the word's meaning in your brain totally and completely that's what i was having a hard time understanding because i was like there's no parameters to this it's just like garbledygook it's secret twin language so what are we how does this actually work he gets it somewhat right and he gets it somewhat wrong like anyone does when they're scrambling for a solution and i'm that type that wants to try 120 solutions rapid fire to see what one gets closest quickest have you played the stupid fucking wordle game that everyone's talking about online no, seen I've Twitter, seen Wordle. it. I've seen it on Twitter. Yeah. I have no idea what it pertains to. Wordle is very timely in respect to our conversation here. Uh, you're supposed to guess a five-letter word. They don't give you a clue. So go. Guess a five-letter word. It's like any... Silent. There's a fucking five-letter word. Well, wrong. You know? <laughs> like, how do you win at that game? But it does give you clues as to what letters appear in the actual word and what letters you have guessed in the word that you guessed, you literally guessed, appear in the right spots. So there's your clues. You know, you start going from there to, to get this word. And surprisingly, you can get this word in relatively few steps. This is the same sort of idea where Grant Mazzy is like, I have clues. My clues are that words are infected. What words we don't know. How they're infected, we're not really clear. But I've just sort of fixed Sydney by having her convinced that kill is kiss. If you could went on that to that logic, you would want to say like, okay, well, silent is sample and, and headphone is microphone. And you want to just move stuff around. And he says that at one point where he really seems to have gotten this. You just got to move stuff around a little bit. Trying to explain it to other people is near impossible because he's not Marshall McLuhan who could hardly explain his own theories, but you need to do what he did when, if you follow my theory, he initially infected everyone with Pont de Poule, Pontypool, and Honey the Cat, or whatever. And just moving stuff around a little bit so that your understanding of something like Pont means bridge and Pool means flack. Very different words in either language. Like he needs to do what he did in the beginning to do this to undo it and he doesn't quite get that himself though because he doesn't know what i think i know which is that he caused this by flipping words inside out ever slightly so him trying to wrestle with it and then getting it wrong and saying blue is the grass color 
is a statement. <laughs> you know, like he doesn't quite get it himself because he starts really stretching it out with mm -hmm. kill is fire hydrant. You know, that wouldn't work. Kill equals kiss, simple sample, those sorts of things worked to infect or uninfect. He had it, but he wasn't sure what he even had. And it would be so dependent because it, I can't tell if this infection is, if you say there's X amount of thousand words in the English language, here's 24 commonly used phrases. If you use any of these phrases, you're infected. Or if it's literally like, I'll, I'll put it to you for an, an example. So the way that my Tourette syndrome works, the way that my, vo my vocal tics work is a combination of my own mental state and also how mimetic the things I'm experiencing enter my brain. So for example, if I were to, and I, and I never know what it's going to be. Sometimes people can play on me and they can s repeat words or phrases around me to see if I start saying it. Uh, I know people have played that little prank on me before. And, and all of a sudden I'll be sitting there like making my coffee and I'll be saying something. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard it. Like sometimes I say nonsensical things. You're like, why would he say that? And it's just, I don't know. I'm not even noticing that I'm doing it. But the thing is, is it's not a specific word or phrase. It could literally be anything. It's just how it hits my brain and how that information decides to root itself into my impulse control. And if it wiggles past that, that becomes a way for these synapses to misfire. And now I am just automatically saying a nonsense phrase that has, like comprehension has nothing to do with it. So, so my question would be, is it really limited to words? And so let's say you're infected with the word kill. And I tell you that kill means kiss. That's great. That worked on you. But for all I know, one of a, of a thousand words, 2000, I don't know how many words are in the English language. I'm sure we could ask somebody, but um, would it be not by a case by case basis? So maybe instead of like trying to, he's just trying to give someone the formula, but it's kind of up to the pr people around you to sort of fix you or for you to fix yourself. If you find yourself in that situation, you have to like recognize that it's happening and then try to come up with a different way and uh, for, for your brain to do that. And how far gone are you? Like, the, like, um, I'm, like, let's say you were at the point in which Laurel Ann was where she's mutilating herself and ramming into it. Is there no hope of saving her? Is it only the initial point of infection that you can, you know what I mean? No, I do know what you mean. Um, in that it seems far more convoluted. One of the things that they're repeating in this herd is watch out for U-boats. It's not as simplistic as kill is kiss. Or if someone would have been able to wrestle Laurel Ann back from the brink with Mr. Mazzy is missing. No, Mr. Mazzy isn't missing. Honey, the cat is missing. Uh, Monsieur Mazzy a disparu. Maybe you could have worked it out of her that way mm -hmm. so that Mazzy still means Mazzy. She knew who Mr. Mazzy was. It was the missing part that was confusing her so much. Now... I'm going to look in this. I don't know if it comes up with look out for U-boats, but I'm going to just give a little try here. Mrs. French's cat is missing. The signs are posted all over town. Have you seen honey? We've all seen the posters, but nobody has seen 
Honey the Cat. Nobody until last Thursday morning when Miss Colette Pissin swerved her car to Miss Honey the Cat as she drove across a bridge. While this bridge, now slightly damaged, is a bit of local treasure and even has its own fancy name, Pont de Flac. Now Colette, that sounds like culotte, that's panty in French, and Pissin means pool, panty pool. Flac also means pool in French, so Colette Pissin in French panty pool drives over the Pont de Flac, the Pont de Pool, if you will, and to avoid hitting Mrs. French's cat that has been missing in Ponty Pool. Ponty Pool. Panty Pool. Pont de Flac. What does it mean? Well, Norman Mailer, he had an interesting theory that he used to explain the strange coincidences in the aftermath of the JFK assassination. In the wake of huge events, after them or before them, physical details, they spasm for a moment. They sort of unlock. And when they come back into focus, they suddenly coincide in a weird way. Street names and birth dates and middle names, all kind of superfluous things appear related to each other. It's a ripple effect. So what does it mean? Well, it means something is going to happen, something big, but then something's always going to happen. Was that the opening sequence of the movie? Yeah. That was very good. I, I, was, I was just like, oh, wait, that does make sense. So he didn't mention U-Boats. <laughs> that was my whole reason for rereading that. Uh, but he does mention JFK, which someone could take into Cold War Soviet tangentially into germany to u-boats i don't know but mrs french's cat is missing yeah i think you're onto something i think his pre-tape mm. is what caused everything i really do i really do and it's only upon several several rewatches of this movie that i've come to this conclusion it took me a while it took me a while it's a goddamn wordle it's a big long hour and 36 minute wordle but you know what? It's not the end of the world, Wes. It's just the end of the day. Yeah, um, Grant Massey goes on for one last broadcast. His idea is that we need to get this word out. And he sort of fucking bumbles it, like I said. He doesn't seem to get it. He's trying to explain to people, you have to stop understanding. You have to move things around. If I'm telling, if I called you up and said, Wes, Wes, you have to stop understanding. You have to move things around. You wouldn't know what the fuck. You know, I'd just be like, uh, Chris, is Lydia having a stroke? <laughs> Pretty much. And that is what his producer starts yelling at him. Sydney's like, no, you people aren't going to understand. This is just garbledygook. Like, you, you're not explaining yourself. Because she has been infected and fixed miraculously mm -hmm. with that. Although she doesn't really understand what he's done he's trying to explain it on the radio while people are shooting the army has definitely been a presence in the town for the last hour but they are now just killing everybody and you can hear it coming in from the walls and it sounds like they're they have tanks rumbling down the streets because plaster is falling mm -hmm. from the ceiling mm -hmm. or it sounds like airstrikes like there's 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 that type of stuff and then there's this big countdown uh what i'm guessing it's i, I was like did they fire the fucking rocket from return of the living dead where it's just they're gonna blow up the entire fucking town that seems to be where they're going with it and then it ends with sydney and mazzy kissing and then it fades to credits and then the credits treat us to broadcasts about everything's 
okay, except there seems to be crop ups and like Peterborough. Like I was like, wow, like talk about like mentioning like a weird Ontario town. Um, uh, there seems to be crop ups of this phenomenon here and there, although on a much smaller scale. I liked the one lady who was talking about, oh, I was out of my head. I wasn't making any sense, but uh, I feel better now and having a coffee. I'm just about to take the dog out. And I was like, oh my God, that's so like, yep, everything's fine. Gonna go walk the dog. Got my got my little chores to do, having a coffee. That's, that's uh, very appropriate. And then it, um, could you explain to me this last bit that looks like a Quentin Tarantino Robert Rodriguez thing going on here? Yeah. Uh, we meet our, what we had formerly known as Grant Mazzy and Cindy Breyer, who is not alive anymore. And I'm guessing this is the afterlife to a certain extent. Uh, as Johnny Deadeyes and Lisa. And they are dressed as like noir, quasi, sort of anti-heroes, if not villains. And they're gonna go and knock boots across the free world, and they're gonna hop in a car and drive into the sunset or whatever. Like it is very strange. They have this little little dialogue moment about them not being them, basically. It is the intro to the sequel to this movie, which is nothing to do with Pontypool. So if you like the Pontypool the town, you like Honey the Cat, you like Colin Pitson, you like the fucking Grant Mazzy and the radio station and Laureland. Forget all that. We're going into dreamland territory, baby. And it is not this story. It is a sequel that takes off after this strange glimpse of the afterlife of Johnny Dead Eyes and Lisa, whoever they are, played by the characters we just spent all this time with. That's all. Um, so you could conceivably not watch that last snippet because it doesn't have anything really to do with Pontypool. Okay, that actually <laughs> makes a lot of sense because I was, uh, it was the credits, and so I went to go um, start a coffee because uh, I was running a little behind today and I needed to get going on the show. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to have a coffee. And, and then I came back into the living room and I saw the TV and I was like, uh, what the fuck is this scene? And I like sat there and I, uh, I stood there and I watched it. And I was just like, I'm just going to ask the lady about this later. I have no idea what to make of this. Yep, that's what that is. And it's also, you know, if Dreamland, the film never happened, it's just another strange thing where you got to move things around. You got to stop understanding. So that's Pontypool. That is Pontypool. <laughs> I have a lot of fun with this film. I like it so much. And it does one of two things. It makes me go and read Marshall McLuhan. It also makes me check out the obituaries from my hometown. I don't know if those are good or bad things, but I think that it is a great film. If you're not into watching pandemic stuff, if that's too squicky for you at the moment or the past two years or the next two years, that Pontypool covers those same sorts of things. And it's, it's fun. It's a great study in a very small cast. It's an interesting take on a pandemic and it's an interesting take on Ontario small towns. You know, it's a good, interesting take is Chris's take on the world of music. He's got a new album out, Anorex, I believe. Yeah, nothing but victims laugh. Now, if you want to talk about things being all related, 
We had used some anoraks in our previous episode as a bit of a sound bez. If you thought you heard music while you were listening to the last episode of Dead Air, that was that. Mm-hmm. And it is a title that is similar uh, from a line from one of our, my favorite films, a great French film at that. So if you want to talk about things being all quasi-related, uh, Martyrs. So mm-hmm. there's some French content for you. Quite fun in that when they mention Peterborough as one of the towns being maybe infected at the end of this film, we're going to be talking to Amy, or I, I'm going to be talking to Amy for the Typical Books podcast. We're going to have a catch-up hangout chat tomorrow, and mm-hmm. I was thinking of Amy recently to do that, and in between our conversation tomorrow and thinking of her the other day and hearing about Peterborough and thinking of her more. She was on the radio with you and Chris's music is often on the radio here in town. So if you're interested in all things French and being interrelated, Dead Air, the show, the radio, anorax.bandcamp.com, the new album, Nothing But Victims Left, is up now. And I'll have a link to it, of course, on Twitter and typicalbooks.com. Yeah. That should be really, really cool. Um, and yeah, I was on uh, CBC with Amy yesterday. I was I was um, the bumpkin in the boardroom because I was dealing with people with PhDs uh, and they were talking about the Scream franchise and I got to talk for a minute or two about Scream. Um, I, I definitely had that urge to try to lighten the mood and not be a spoil sport because uh, listeners will probably know how I feel about Scream. And if you don't, you'll learn soon because there'll be a there'll be a, a no-holds-barred discussion of the Scream film eventually. I swore I'd never do it, and then I kind of thought maybe we should. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so uh, th- that was really fun. Lydia was supposed to be on the radio. You were supposed to be on CBC uh, but well, they asked you to, and you were just like, nah, let Wes do it. He's the ham and I am, and I, uh, ham, I am. And I definitely enjoyed doing it. I love to, you know, this is the weird thing is that we've been doing this for like a long time. Like you and I have been doing this just the show 10 years over 10 years or something like that. And we've been, and you, we've both been steeped in doing the horror plus thing for a really long time. But like, I've never really been like in a situation where it's just like, Oh, you know about a thing. Why don't you come on this show and talk about the thing that you know about? I have my own show in which we talk about things that I know about. Um, so it was very fun to to be there. Of course, I'm I'm up against uh, two other people who literally have letters after their names about the things that they know about horror movies and shit like that. So I was a little on the rails, but uh, it was it was fun. It was fun to do that. No, you're the shoo-in. You are the natural choice for that. As far as if someone wants to talk to Dead Air Podcast about Scream, it's not me. Because I just mix the films up all the time. You know, and you've got the <laughs> better voice for radio as far oh, as I'm concerned now. and are, are trained in that for, far more than I am. So you're much better at thinking on your feet. I need, I need a script, damn it. <laughs> Which, I'm kidding, I don't use a script for this, but... I, I fire off yeah. Wes. I don't fire off Alan Neal. <laughs> but you no, can find no. the snippet of Wes Snipe, Amy Jane Vosper, and Ali Ahmed talking to Alan Neal on CBC's All in a Day by searching for 
all in a day at cbc.ca slash listen or just searching all in a day scream west snipe we had two plugs for the show during that snippet yes it was very good i was i was very happy um <laughs> that that at least that got in there um on top of like west snipe saw a movie once uh and that gives me that makes me qualified to uh, you know what maybe that's inspirational maybe i'm Maybe I'm giving myself too little credit because, like, someone else listening to that could be like, "Hey, I saw a movie once. Maybe I could be on the radio." Um, or more like, if they need be... to talk to somebody who saw a movie once, I'll give you a call. Oh my god, that would be so fun! If it, I, I doubt that this would open doors like that, but like, man, if I could just like, if 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 I could like do a thing where. I got to sit there and be a smarty pants about a horror movie, like literally every day for a different show. I'd be a happy man. Cause like, I just want people to think I'm smart and good Lydia. I just want to be enough. <laughs> That's all I want. I would want them to pay you period. You know, speaking of pay, <sighs> be- uh, typical books has some subscription audio. You might've noticed it. Wes noticed it on Spotify or wherever you find typical books, the podcast um, if you're interested in the long form monthly magazine where I talk for well over an hour about all things horror fiction, you can check that out. And the YouTube show also has a subscription thing. If you like custom emojis, want to see blooper reels and have a special 15 minute hello hangout chat <laughs> that I broadcast on the YouTube members only portion, you can also check that out. But where we don't have a patron for dead air. Wes has a patron for Teresa. I do have a patron for uh, Teresa. Um, Teresa is a comic book that is very near and dear to my heart because I write it and a lot of the characters are my creations. Um, the The story of Teresa is concluding uh, shortly. Um, there is an issue after this, and that's what Chris uh, Begarin and I have planned right now. Currently, it's the 12th issue. There's 12 issues of Teresa that are uh, have 11 already made, 12s in production, 13 is what we're ending with. And right now the issue is Control Freak. Um, Teresa is a, a 17 year old girl who fights monsters and is the product of a demonic sire, but not entirely because she's also the product of a celestial sire. And she has given up her demonic powers to now tap into her angelic powers the problem is is the angel that's controlling her powers is absolutely fucking insane so you have the um you have that story to look forward to that's what the story of control freak is about it's about teresa's trying to gain control of her own sanity while someone so puritanical and good has become absolutely monstrous in the process Fascinating, fascinating. And I like that this is not a pandemic or virus story, although it has a lot to do with control freaks, mind control, having powers that be a little out of their minds. So very interesting, very interesting. I like that. So you can check that out on Webtoons and support the last few episodes. Are you guys planning anything else in the realm of comics when Teresa comes to a close? Uh, I don't know, honestly. Uh, I've talked to Chris a little bit about where he wants to go and what he wants to do. The fact of the matter is, 
there are more stories to tell in the world of Teresa, I'd be happy to revisit the characters at some point. Um, and maybe Chris would want to do that at some point, but I don't know. Right now, he um, uh, right now is just he's very busy, and so it's hard to get the books out at a reasonable pace. So I thought thirteen is a good place to end it because the the main story we had planned was done. And in the meantime, uh, Aurora is coming down the pipeline. Book two is completed, and that Kickstarter is going to be up in a matter of months. And book three is nearly completed um and i gotta get back on that and finish up the last little bit of it so there's more stuff from me coming in the world of comic books at, at the very least so what do we got next for him lids i don't know we haven't really picked anything but i'd like to stay into the snowy horrible cold desolate fucking shitty tundra that we call winter if you don't mind I don't mind at all it's a good time of year to be doing some spooky cold winter stuff on the list was Dead Snow, so that's a possibility, a snowy zombie movie, some ratsies in it. And I'm sort of surprised we haven't done it, considering we did Frankenstein's Army, and those two movies live very close in my mind. Dead Snow, mm -hmm. watch out for U-boats. <laughs> that's definitely a possibility. And on that snowy note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to dead air.